Welcome to GovInnovator, I'm Andy Feldman. Our topic today is using behavioral insights to strengthen the results of human services programs. Our guests are LaShawn Richburg-Hayes and Nadine Deshose from the social policy research firm MDRC. Here's a clip. I have tended to find that this behavioral insights approach you know, kind of activates those program mem- uh, staff members who are looking for a new way of doing things and maybe also looking for some justification for changing um, what they've been doing, but maybe don't have the tools. So with, you know, this body of evidence and the technical assistance that the behavioral insights teams can bring in, it really, you know, gives them something new to do and they find it to be a really positive professional development experience. In 2010, the Administration for Children and Families at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services launched a project to explore how programs could address specific challenges by applying insights from behavioral science, including behavioral economics. It's called the BIAS Project, which stands for Behavioral Interventions to Advance Self-Sufficiency. Now, six years later, we have the results of 15 randomized experiments conducted across seven states on the topics of employment, child support, and child care. To get an overview and also hear some broader implementation lessons for other human services agencies that might want to use some of these interventions, or so-called nudges, we're joined by two researchers from the social policy research firm MDRC, which was a partner on the BIAS project. I'm glad to have Nadine Deshose and LaShawn Richburg-Hayes with us today. Welcome to you both. Thank you. LaShawn, start us off, if you would, with an overview of what some of these interventions focused on. Sure. Uh, We actually followed a pretty structured process that we've called behavioral diagnosis and design, and that involved us understanding the processes associated with these problems, identifying the bottlenecks or places where things didn't go quite as designed or envisioned, and developed behavioral solutions for those bottlenecks that seemed amenable to that approach. And after looking at all of the studies we've done, the 15 RCTs, looking back at the interventions we developed, there were actually seven behavioral concepts that we used across all of the projects. We developed the mnemonic to make this easy to remember called SIMPLER. And SIMPLER stands for Social Influence, Implementation Prompt, mandated deadline, personalization, loss aversion, ease, and reminders. So just to give you an example, social influence is the concept of persuading by referencing peers. So in Texas, we implemented postcards that had a little blurb on it that said, other parents have had courts lower their child support by 200 $500 per month. And the goal of sharing that was to say to uh, the parents that there are others in your situation like you who have applied for a child support order modification and they've had these outcomes. So that's an encouragement to say, well, if it's happened to my peer, someone just like me, perhaps I can have a similar outcome. As another example, we implemented mandated deadlines in New York. And the concept there is to just make deadlines prominent. We did that by including on a postcard a little blurb that said, all you need to do is come to a food bank office by March 29, 2014. So making it very clear what a client needed to do and by when. 
So these are very low-cost behavioral interventions, and they may not sound uh, sexy as you listen to them. You may be very familiar with these types of strategies in your day-to-day life and marketing, but it's relatively new to think very systematically and strategically as to how to use them in human service programs. That's useful. And we should say that these, uh, the child support order modifications that you mentioned were for incarcerated non-custodial parents who had limited earnings given that they were in prison, uh, and that can lead to significant child support debt. So that was the motivation for encouraging encouraging them to do these modifications. Uh, LaShawn, tell us a bit about the results of these types of interventions. And we should note that these were all done as randomized control trials, so that enabled accurate estimates of their impact. Absolutely. So in terms of impact, and I'm glad you made that distinction because oftentimes we confuse impact with outcomes. So we're talking about a difference between what actually happened and what would have happened should these interventions, these nuts-like interventions not taken place. Generally speaking, across the 15 RCTs, uh, the impact fell between 2 and 4 percentage points. However, we also found some sites with impacts as large as uh, 11 percentage points, and our largest impact uh, was 32 percentage points. These were all low-cost interventions. On average, the costs ranged between $1 and $2 per person, per client. The highest cost intervention uh, was a, a little over $10 per client. Our audience may be curious about what was the intervention that had that largest impact. I also noticed it was the same as the one with the largest cost which was working with the state of Washington around a topic we just talked about, helping incarcerated non-custodial parents to submit a child support order modification. The individuals who received that intervention submitted these forms for modification at a rate of 41%, and the control group had a rate of only 9%. Nadine, I'd like to switch to you now and ask you for some of the implementation lessons from these 15 projects. Okay. So... The way I thought I would address this question is by talking about something that I am often asked when I discuss this project, and that is um, people ask, how can you simplify procedures um, to reduce bottlenecks in these human services programs, which are so complicated and have so many rules? You know, literally last week someone said, uh, don't complicated policies require complicated descriptions. And I think our work on bias demonstrates our top operational lesson that simplification is possible, but it's not simple. So, you know, we did find that to do this work, you have to roll up your sleeves and try to understand why all of the staff people that you're interacting with uh, believe they have to do what they're currently doing. And we tend to find that there are some low-hanging fruits to reduce complexity simply by removing out-of-date information, legal disclosures that don't need to be repeated and everything, or information that only applies to a small subset of cases. You know, we find that program administrators and operators have a tendency to add information to existing forms, but not to remove it. And, you know, they think that this is beneficial because, you know, more information is typically thought to be better. So we come in with a behavioral lens and explain to program staff that excess information actually strains the limited bandwidth of readers and makes it more difficult for them to understand the information. And that can be persuasive. Um, The other thing we 
found was that different levels of the organization were often not on the same page about um, how the programs ought to run. So, you know, a policy, for example, might call for a forgiving, family-friendly approach to reviewing documents required for recertifying childcare uh, vouchers, but the frontline staff are extremely strict in analyzing those documents because they're afraid of getting dinged by their supervisors. So the bias team would come in and interview all levels of staff, read the policy and forms, and do observations, and we would always encourage the programs to resolve discrepancies in a way that made it easier for participants to access program services. Uh, because our approach was evidence-based and we did RCTs in every case, which um, had an implementation research component where we were looking at whether or not there was any harm to the program based uh, due to the changes that we instituted, we found that staff were willing to at least try these new approaches and go along with it. Just one final point about the staff. You know, I think generally we found that staff were happy to participate in bias and thought the um, experience was worthwhile. Um, I have tended to find that this behavioral insights approach, you know, kind of activates those program mem uh, staff members who are looking for a new way of doing things and maybe also looking for some justification for changing um, what they've been doing, but maybe don't have the tools. So with, you know, this body of evidence and the technical assistance that the behavioral insights teams can bring in, it really, you know, gives them something new to do and they find it to be a really positive professional development experience. I think that's really interesting. It gives uh, staff a reason to take a fresh look at operations, including bottlenecks or inefficiencies that one might otherwise just take as take for granted. Exactly. For our listeners who want to learn more, I will post a PowerPoint presentation by MDRC that provides more details on the goals of these 15 projects and also their results, so you can check that out on the podcast website. For now, my thanks to LaShawn Richburg-Hayes and Nadine DeChose for being with us, and thank you all for listening.